Hey, welcome to the Rain and Morale podcast. So do you ever feel like screaming out in the office on Zoom or outside the school gates? For the love of God, come on, really? Then if this is you and you're looking for an honest, fun and frank podcast on life and business, then sit back and listen to me, Rain and Morale. I'll be bringing great people on the show to talk, share and debate their life experiences and business challenges. Keeping the show unpolished, but in a fun and unique British style with sarcasm, tenacity, maybe a few swear words or tears. This podcast keeps it real, honest, raw and removes the bullshit in the only way I know how, through authenticity and getting shit done. Think of it less like the Housewives of New York or TOWIE with the lipo and drama and more like the house lives of the real world. I hope you'll take something away to be better informed laugh, smile, or maybe even finally getting the confidence to shout, come on, really. So enjoy. Hi, David. Welcome to the Rain and Morale podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. It's a bit wet and miserable here today, but uh, I believe you're based in Stockholm? Right. It's full of snow today. Oh, stunning. Well, you know, just typical British rain, I'm afraid. But we do need the water, so I'm not I'm not complaining. Um, well, listen, for um, the listeners, I'm delighted to have David Colst here with us. Um, and it's part of my Earth for All series. And I'm super impressed with David's background. And I came across David through initially reading the book and then reaching out to the team. And so as a way of introduction... Uh, David is a researcher and a modeler um, at the Stockholm Resilience Centre, focusing on the future of the human development in the Anthropocene. And I'm going to let David explain what we mean when we say the Anthropocene, because not everybody will know what that means. Um, That you study the feedback between human development, the economy um, and our planetary boundaries. So people might know them as tipping points as well. And we can we can touch on that. Um, But you also co-lead the graduate module on systems thinking at the Stockholm Resilience Centre and the master's programme and lead on the undergraduate course in ecological economics, which is something I've been delving my head into recently as well. Um, And you are the 2022 recipient of the Donnello Meadows Prize. So kudos to you. Thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Rona. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure my intro would take that long, Um, so (laughs) it'd be pretty flat and boring. So the reason why we're chatting today is, as I've alluded to, I had spent a long time widening my knowledge set around the futures of humanity, the fourth industrial revolution and, and, you know, kind of economics and the, the models that we and frameworks that we couldn't really run in. And I came across this um, book, um, Earth for All, after I'd done my studies at Cambridge. And we had a, a small event on it um, in, in London a couple of months ago. And I, I felt after reading it, I'd got tons of notes in the sides and going, yes, absolutely. Well, this makes sense, you know, blah, blah. And I, I did, up until this point, the few books that I had read left me with not a lot of hope, actually, about how we were as humans going to change when you know what's needed. But this book actually gave me a sense of, Oh, actually, instead of moaning and getting on with it, here's, you know, in in the only way I know how, here's some solutions and they are doable and they are transferable. 
that can be scaled, etc. So, David, you were part of this book and bringing it all together. Can you start to talk to me about the frameworks and some of the um, initiatives that have made this book um, so important to where we might need to go in the future? Yeah, I think very much of what you're referring to now here, Rona. On, uh, so it's not it's nothing impossible in it. So what we are proposing is these five different turnarounds. I think you may have talked to them about them before with the early earlier speakers in the the series. But it's so in themselves, they may not be extremely like uh, out of the blue or far away or like them <laughs> uh, difficult to to pursue or do but together they make a really big difference and that's what we can see when we use this type of integrative modeling so i think the main asset of this type of modeling is that we bring the future to the present so by being able to look at the long term's development uh, given different scenarios gives us also the tool to start to understand that the future lies in our hands so that's why I think that, that that the hope you're referring to, that's very much like the yeah. part of this, this modeling paradigm that we're using, system dynamics. Mm. And so obviously 50 years ago, the, the Club of Rome had their Limits for Growth book. And this is kind of a regrouping and a reassessment. Um, and as Anders had sort of said, look, that, that was very much discredited. No one believed it at the time, et cetera. We are 50 years on and you're certainly nowhere near that age. How have you found it coming in with the knowledge that you've learned through universities and what you're teaching? Talk to us a little bit about the model of too little, too late and a giant leap. So I, I think that the so back back to the the limits to growth book. I think it has been discredited a lot, but for, but now like many studies last year, just with with our colleague Guy Harrington, but earlier also with Turner and other others, they have found that. The scenarios of the limits to growth were still are still very plausible in the sense that from 50 years ago, from 1972 until today, we have developed very much in line with those scenarios or what they what they suggest. Yeah. So, so taking this forward, when you start modeling, we, we usually try to model a problem and not the system. So when the limits to growth was written, the focus was very much given the current trajectory, where are we likely to head? Yes. So so that's why we see this very grim scenarios, especially those that have been communicated mostly. But our question was instead, what is needed in order to change? So we had a much more forward looking uh, perspective in a way from the beginning of the project. And that's how we we ended up in the five turnarounds and that, yes, Mm-hmm. with very powerful turnarounds we can change the trajectory do you think that because we had that let's be honest foresight knowledge and data even 50 years ago longer than that and now that 50 years on we can prove that the modeling of that time is not all of it's gone exactly correct of course but but very similarly that the patterns have been there how do you think that is now impacting the success of these policies or how we might be able to get more buy-in politically within the private sector etc and and driving credibility so yeah having more information sources that are like speaking the same language or or referring to the same changes uh, is 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 helping and i think also this is a lot of about communication the earth for the limits to growth book got so much attention because it was new it was novel and it was you know the first time one took this kind of uh, computer driven 
long-term outlook. Uh, now it's quite common with, with different kinds of models. Uh, system dynamics, taking this, you know, very much of an overview, systems overview, is not so common. So, so I think that 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 we are out now trying to communicate, trying to uh, get this message clear, also while trying to improve the model. And we're inviting people to look at the model and, and to try different assumptions. Maybe, maybe they don't agree with us on some of their relationships. Well, please download the model and then you can try it differently. So, so we want to open a conversation and see that, okay, so how can the future look like? I think back, back in the 70s, I know, some of my older colleagues, they, they, they have been talking be about... Careful what you, be careful what you say now, they'll be listening. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they have been talking about a different atmosphere that, that yeah. back then, at least in Sweden, I think in many parts of Europe, there was, was still an, an idea that we can change the future. There was this possibilities of change. Whereas now the story is often becoming very grim. We, we, we know the threats we are facing. We are in the Anthropocene, as we mentioned before, uh, where the, the, the human is the main um is dominating or all ecological systems all the living systems and affecting them in ways that we cannot really uh, yeah. oversee we are passing critical tipping points that that could be disastrous for the human species so so there is a risk of 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 just seeing these problems because they are huge they are there so that that has to be kind of our starting point but we also need to think of okay but what what does an alternative world look like and it's actually very it, it's a very nice world the alternative there's so many good synergies there you know by yeah. improving by by limiting poverty in the world we also limit the population growth and, and we could see a better long-term future for humanity by investing in women empowerment uh, we see a lot of good health effects we see increased education as well so and and by by doing all of those turnarounds that we discuss we can also limit the pressures on the planetary boundaries so that there's so many different relationships here that are important to acknowledge and see that uh, with these synergies it's actually much more pleasant future that we we could end up in rather than than today and i think we really need to to think of this in that way so just for anyone listening who doesn't understand what what does the anthropocene mean when people say we're entering this area we are now in the anthropocene could you just in a really you know kind of rona idiots proof way what what do, what do we mean when we say that so what, what we mean is that um if we look back in time, especially like the last 10,000 years, we've been in a geological epoch referred to as the Holocene. That's the most like stable climate-wise and ecological-wise time period for a very, very long time in the geological history. And that's also coincides, like entering the Holocene, these stable relationships also coincides with the development of uh, the human species in the form of settling down, beginning with agriculture, and then from there on we see the the industrial revolution and so on. And and all of these positive human developments that we see uh, are very much tied to the biosphere conditions for human thriving. Right. So, so the Holocene, that's where we want to stay in a way. That's the conditions that we know, the Earth system conditions for human thriving. What, what we're doing now since the last uh, 50 or 100 years is that we entered the Great Acceleration, where we see, of course, good things as, as uh, less poverty. We see a lot of educational attainment. We see a lot of good things. But we also see growing GDP, growing aggregate production. We see growing exports, imports. We see growing consumption. 
uh, we see, and then the the problem is not that that we see these per se or growing population. The problem is that uh, these are mirrored in the Earth system trends. So we see also, of course, increasing greenhouse gases. We see increasing nitrogen use. We see uh, different increases on the biophysical Earth system scale that are very problematic for the future thriving of the planet. So that's what we refer to as the Anthropocene. Is basically leaving the Holocene conditions, the only conditions that we know where yeah. human humanity can thrive, and entering something different where the human is a is a driving force of all yeah. of ecological change. And in itself, this this may not be a problem if we were good stewards, but we are not. And 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 the problem here is that we are, we may cross tipping points without being aware of it, which could then. Uh, lead to reinforcing, self-reinforcement change that is destroying the conditions for human being in the moment. Well, I think it's fair to say, obviously, for the last hundreds, if not thousands of years, there has been inequalities and poverty. So we have to make it really clear that um, it's not, you know, even I'm I'm 45, so I'm not quite born in 72, but... I remember as a little girl seeing, you know, droughts and poverty, uh, you know, comet relief, all these things from a very, from a very young age. And I, you know, witnessed it myself. So it's not as if, you know, there are people out there who just think, well, that's happened for ages. It's it's not down to humans. What, what, what is it is that us humans, you know, are, are doing and accelerating. So when you talk about um, systems, it'd be great to kind of, dive into that a little bit about how you talk about the interconnectedness of these of these systems and how your modeling looks at systems versus very linear um processes and you know inputs and outputs yes yeah, so a very good example of that i think is the population report that we just uh, released and that was launched this week um where where we can where most other demographers, or not not maybe demographers necessarily, but but the population projections that are most referred to, the UN pro- projections, they are arriving at very very high n- numbers of long term population uh, in comparison to our estimates. And why is it so? The the reason is that we we are looking at this from a system perspective, so we are connecting things back and forth. We're having a lot of feedbacks. Uh, for example, if if we we talked just just now about the growing production. If countries' incomes are increasing, yeah. um, fertility goes down very powerfully, very strongly, and and that's because of course uh, women, particularly women, but parents, they get access to education, to health, to family planning, uh, and they can choose to have fewer children. Uh, on the global yeah. level, that's a luxury still. And then we see people are choosing to have much fewer children. And we see this development in the rich countries all over the world, in all regions, all continents of the world. The richest countries, they have much fewer children because of uh, these these excesses. And then, of course, mortality is also decreasing, but that only has an effect in the short term. So we see this, this longer-term development where, where population, a young population also means a big workforce. So that has a, has a positive development, uh, positive effect on the economy. So, so what we're doing is that we're connecting these different domains. We're connecting the economy to choices of fertility, and then when when fertility is going down, there is there is uh, fewer people, and there is also 
benefits there for societies in the long run to provide for an economic development that is more positive. So, so by by looking taking a system perspective, we can connect different areas, and we we start to to be able to have a more overarching holistic picture of what's going on. We sacrifice detail, but we gain uh, across domain feedbacks basically. Okay, so if picking up on that um, population, what's the difference at the moment between the kind of UN numbers and what you've just recently published across various, obviously, plethora of platforms? Right. So we think the population will peak in, let's say, the 50s, 60s or so, the 2050s, 2060s, and then it will begin to decline. And that's because we're seeing already population has peaked. Probably it has already peaked in China. We see that it has peaked in Europe and other rich countries and also in, in Latin America. So, so we see that, that when population has, has peaked, of course, it starts to decline quite fast. Uh, and our estimates, we also think that the poorer regions of the world, they will continue to grow. So... Currently, the, ma- the main increase in population is in Africa, south of Sahara, and the Indian subcontinent, so South Asia. But these, we, we also think, will, will eventually uh, stop and also peak and b- begin to decline. So we're seeing a much earlier peak, and then we also see the, this strong decline, yeah. which is not in the UN uh, pro- projections. Okay, brilliant. And so how do we then balance, for example, we... we drive we, we we decrease poverty we increase education there's this natural obvious i mean really you couldn't argue it because we, we see it all over in the developed world what about then the challenge that we're going to have and rightly so about greater consumption greater consumption of proteins and richer foods chocolates cheeses meats mm. um general goods so i know in the book we talk about you know a, a kind of a we have here a, a national minimum wage, but essentially a global minimum salary. How do your models address that inequality of consumption currently to allow them to grow? And essentially, we need to go this way. So how, how does that work? So it works. I mean, look, looking at the data, uh, there's a lot of increases in emissions, increases in material footprint, etc., especially around, you know, when when you move from, let's say, where the, the poor half of the world is today to where the rich half of the world is today. Um, but it's it's especially between just between that threshold. So around mm-hmm. 15,000 US dollars measured in uh, per, per, per capita um, incomes. Uh, national incomes that is so around that level we, we see before that we see a very strong increase in environmental footprint in different aspects but then after that it's it's low it's uh, saturating okay so, so therefore like bringing people up yes it it will increase our footprints our consumption footprint um but there's other way of ways of bringing it down so we we who live in in already very good conditions, we can start to think of how can we do things differently, and that's also what's happening very much. So so it's about focusing on how to decrease the impacts of uh, high income countries as you were referring to, and and then um, give people the opportunity to thrive at the, at the lower end. So but here we, we are also in in a situation where where poorer countries and regions can leapfrog and using more 
cleaner energies, of course. Yeah, absolutely. And and just I'm just really keen um, in terms of the students that you're you know you're kind of working with and with the courses that that you're running. What's the kind of general feeling amongst the youth that you're sort of helping to teach? Um, what are their views? Do they think this is doable? Do they they do they drive hope? Do they what are they like in the classrooms when you give them some of the big stats? Yeah, no, but I, I think there's they are hopeful. Um, I, I think many have been through a kind of a depression, starting to realize what's going on, starting to to realize we are in the Anthropocene, uh, we're seeing these climate risks and all of that. And and I think many are, are are beginning to see alternatives. They're starting to live differently, and with that, they also start to see uh, hopes and and starting to see alternatives. Mm-hmm. One of my students actually sued the Swedish government for for uh, not not doing enough on climate action. So so he was. Did she win? No, it, it, it's a case now that is it's, it's, it seems like it will actually go to court, uh, as far as I understand from the from the law experts. But yeah, ah, I'm seeing. I am actually seeing quite a lot of those cases coming up now on on things like not in the main news media, but but yeah. certainly in my networks in in LinkedIn and things. Yeah. It's like like every week now, there's someone doing something against right. someone, whether it's not greenwashing or pollution or yeah, it's. But but what's fascinating here is I also think who is because we I had the ecological economics undergraduate course I'm teaching it's it's an elective also and I see people coming from outside a lot of people from last year's cohort had had just finished the bachelor program uh, mm. Stockholm School of Economics but they didn't get ecological economics so so it's interesting to see and 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 some people from finance sector as well coming going back to university in order to to start to study these these principles so it's interesting to see that there's a kind of new interest i think here of the 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 younger people they are teached or taught that yes we live in the anthropocene we're we're transgressing planetary boundaries climate change is an issue and the the older generations are are kind of wanting to come back to school to see what's actually going on no, and, and, and honestly, David, I'll be I'll be brutally honest with you. You know, I'm I'm probably bang on halfway through my life, and I've I've always continued to study. But I guess where I got to after I read after I'd done various courses and I read, you know, less is more and the, the climate book and Earth for All. Really, when it comes down to it, none of this, in my way, that the enlightening moment was. It's not about climate change; it's about economics, mm. and I think that was the the kind of awakening point for me when I look back at the last 500 years of capitalism and how that's evolved. And I guess as, as most people, certainly in, in a developed country, you know, you get up, you work, you, you do ridiculous hours, you're juggling a family. What I've learned as an entrepreneur and having times that are really tough, i.e. say I, I haven't got a client that month or whatever, I'm inquisitive. So I'll be reading and I'll be looking up now I can't stop it. It's actually, <laughs> it's getting addictive, but it just it it just shows you all the things that you kind of thought you knew were going on, but actually now you see what the politicians are doing, you see what the big the big players are controlling and all of that, and you go, holy, I'm I'm kind of done with this, you know. So you're you're absolutely right, and I, I can say that from a middle aged you know woman's point of view. <laughs> 
sorry that was <laughs> that was just my rant uh, um actually what happens when you kind of read up on all of this stuff and you and you go back rather than yeah yeah yeah, yeah. growing up in that yeah 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 no no but it, it's fascinating and and, and it, it's great to see this it's great to see it because <laughs> people need to i mean we need to know we all need to know what's going on in order to make a difference yeah but but hopefully so so i think like i mean in all generations it has always been the the you driving change and i think we, we see this very much with you know greta thunberg in sweden uh really being a symbol of you know an alternative world and we, we need to stop with this we need to do something differently uh it will be really interesting to see what happens in 10 or 20 years with this urge like are we now on the social top tipping points are we seeing the changes are we are we like enabling the conditions for the five turnarounds that we discussed in the earth for all yeah, and I think it's it's really interesting, isn't it, when we look at the technological advancements in terms of the fourth industrial revolution, mm. and we see that how knowledge share now, financial banking can access millions of people that we just, you know, never were able to, to be able to do that. But the kind of the amount of civil unrest that's brewing in, you know, across Europe, as well as countries that we would always, I guess, rightly or wrongly associate with civil unrest it's been quite interesting to see the people you know kind of rising up about changes and that impact them personally yeah and that's something we very much see in the book as well that that we are we are we have constructed a social tension index we think mm. that inequalities have have been continued to rise so in the past we've seen incomes rise uh and and we think that the in incomes will continue to rise. But what we're also seeing now is that with the uh, inequalities, and inequalities have been rising for quite a while now, and we mm. see climate change. So so we begin, although on the macro level, uh, the climate effects that we're seeing today, they don't cause hundreds of millions of lives, etc. Et at at this very point. But what we're seeing that we we're seeing extreme weather events. And we, may, we become conscious as a species, as a collective species in a way, of changes that are taking place. And this is what we refer to in the book as, as this, it's an increase in social unrest, social tension. The risk of this is that we could have drawbacks, we could have like closed borders, we could have, you know, th this kind of negative effects uh, that could then exacerbate the crisis even further. So, th so that's why we're calling this for the, for the changes that we're calling for. It's, it's, not, it's important to do this now before we see you know kind of the, the green future of, of closed borders of of um of even more dirty production etc yeah and i think when we look at those cross borders you know you know here in the uk it's it's a really big topic about refugees coming over on the boats we must stop the boats and yet you then start to look at actually climate migration and what could happen you know i think if anybody was to live in some of these remote continents where you've got little access to education, healthcare, basic food, you can't grow anything, there's not much access to water, what is the one thing that you would do? You would risk your life to go and find a country um, where your family could thrive. As humans, we, you know, that's that's all really we want to do on a basic level is survive. Um, so it is scary to think that because of that and as we exasperate those conditions those weather um uh, patterns that that's only going to generate more and more people moving around the world mm. and, and the problem here is of course those that are in general suffering the most are the poorest 
but those who are responsible for what we're seeing is the developed countries. You know, the, the, I think it's around 16% of the world population living in developed countries, uh, giving rise to 80% or so of the overshoot of planetary boundaries through cons- our consumptive right. behaviors. So it's, and it's it's, in- we are creating the conditions, the poor conditions that is causing the problem that we're seeing. So we need to act on all ends. We need to act on poverty mm. and on inequality. And we also need to act really hard on climate change, on uh, improving regenerative agricultural practices, etc. Well, I think as well through the systems thinking, I think it's about being honest with the data. So when we look at, you know, carbon footprint, you know, we, of course, there are so many loopholes in policies and things at the moment that just go, let's just ignore historical ones. Let's start from now, shall we? Well, yeah, that kind of works for the Western world, doesn't it? But also when we look at our kind of footprint for cross-border um, economics and, and and actually the emissions for the, the full product life cycle example from a, it could be anything, a calculator that you buy on Amazon and it's come from China. So I think it's just about being, how do we, how do we ever get to that point where the data can be genuinely honest? And it might be horrifically horrible to read, but how do we get it and go, well, there, but that's the truth. So what do we do about it? I think most people are not so much confronted with the with the, with this data, uh, like data on global inequality. Is it's I think it's shocking everyone when you read how how unequal things are distributed. Also within countries, I remember um, there have been research on when you ask people to say like what would be a fair distribution, and then people are usually accepting some inequalities, or some would argue that we need quite big inequalities. But then when that is compared with actual inequalities within society, it's always much, much bigger. So so that, so the inequalities uh, in today's world are really, really big, even within countries, and it's growing in many parts of the world. Sweden has the fastest growing inequality among all the developed countries. Even even to things like in the in the developed world, you know, as, a, as an example of all the billions of dollars that are invested to entrepreneurs and new businesses, about 2% of that is given to women. Mm. You know, so that, I mean, that alone, even as I sit here today in England, you think, oh, you know, so when you think about inequalities in your own country, about fair pay and, you know, all these sorts of things, and then you extrapolate that and then think god i need to shut up because i just sound like i'm moaning when you actually look at the global south mm. that's when it can get really difficult to take on board all mm. of that information mm. and not feel guilty mm. no and, how do and you maybe there's something good in that feeling guilty as well maybe we need we need i mean in a way i think we, we need to uh, comprehend uh, the situation of today. We need to understand how big these inequalities are, and how severely we are hurting the planet. How how severely we are transgressing planetary boundaries. But then we need to also think about actions, and and we think <laughs> need to think about this desired future. Yeah. Hmm. And so, before we move on slightly to some of the great concepts, it, um, what what would you say to anybody right now who just said, look? Temperature's going up a couple of degrees. It's not really down to humans. It's just the cycle of the world. Um, you know, you're terrifying everyone with this. We're all going to, you know, either burn, drown or starve. What do you say to people who are very much, I just don't believe in this. I think it's all hype. Oh, <laughs> that's a difficult one. Yeah. What, what to say there? 
So, so I think that that what what we should we should ask these questions to ourselves. Like, why why do I uh, why do I trust that climate change is real? And because mm-hmm. I haven't seen it, right? It, it's difficult to say based, based on the anecdotes. Although I mean, in Sweden, it's, it's very obvious w- w- whether there is snow or not, and that there's less snow over the years, and so on. But in general, it's not something that we experience, right? We experience weather, but not not really climate change it's moving too slow but then wh- why do we why do we believe in it and then because one answer could be that yes I, I i trust the um the scientific process i trust that you know everything that is published is peer-reviewed is reviewed by peers criticized and there is an academic debate going on all the time so it's about the Science is very much of a search for kind of mistakes in early research being done. It's the search for sc- scrutiny. It's the search for, you know, critically looking at things. Uh, our model, for example, in Earthfall is not perfect in any way. And we're inviting yes. that criticism. There, there's Im- improvements in going on in different projects, I think, even from where we are now with Earthfall model, for example. So so that's why we should trust when, when something like the IPCC uh, including thousands of researchers citing thousands of papers or saying that this is the fact basically this is where we are now based on the best estimates this is where where we are heading and this is where we are now yeah Uh, so it's it's um it's not about you know one could make up very plausible explanations of what's going on but but one needs to listen to the experts and one need to compare what what do the experts say and and why do I trust the experts? Well, why should we critically also assess this? It's because of the scientific method, I would say. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really valid point, and I think for 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 most people, we just get a flash of it. I don't know what it's like in in Stockholm right now, but definitely we're getting way more coverage on the news, and there's more TV programs, and even you know your your kind of. Um, drama series and your netflix series are including climate in the storyline so it's great it's great to see um but essentially you know we know in the background that a lot of this data we don't have that belief that we can trust it not because i don't think we believe the scientists which just that peer review and lobbying and i mean it came out today about the ipcc's review of how it had been watered down by agricultural and fossil fuel lobbyists mm-hmm. so but yeah if, IPC- if anything ipcc is conservative yeah and so it's like well if you can't believe the ipcc then and, and of course that then plays into to everybody's hands that want to continue business as usual so yeah i think you're right those subtle changes you know for me i don't have to wipe my windscreen anymore when i drive long distance for bugs and goodness knows what else and mm-hmm. i don't have snow every year that i used to play in as a little girl you know, sledging, but oh gosh, I'm sure we could go on about this forever. But mm. just, just lastly, mm. and this is going to might be a tough one for you. But out of all of the five models, so we look at poverty, inequality, gender oh, equality. Right it's all from one model. Yes, from the one model, um, the right food and energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. What would be your if you could only? I know you can't pick one because they're all interconnected. But if you had to be given a magic wand right now, which one of those would you solve globally and why? The energy one, I I, I think, is the most important at the moment. 
Mm. Why? Because climate change is such an existential threat. Okay, lovely. Well, listen, if you are interested to read more about this book, please do. It really kind of changed my way of thinking about things. And I, you know, the the authors were very open at the beginning about this isn't a perfect model. We welcome, you know, people to come and have a chat and, and, you know, rip it apart and make recommendations. Um, David, look, thank you so much for your time. Keep doing the incredible work you're doing and inspiring that kind of next generation with the knowledge and the facts. Um, It's been an absolute delight to have you on today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Rona. It's been very pleasant. Thank you. Thanks, David. So that's it. You've made it. The show's over. Thank you for being with us. I hope you've been able to take something away, maybe solve a problem, or just know you're not alone. Here's hoping it made you smile with a few laughs along the way. Please feel free to find me on all social media channels, and you can subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just search the Rona Morale podcast. Have an awesome day and see you next time.